Alrighty, if you will, turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Malachi chapter 3. We've got two more messages in Malachi. We will, and it's, it's sort of going to be a two-part seri- two part, or a bookends of one another, these last, two, these last two sermons. But Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 and through 18, and then next week we will close it out uh, with chapter 4. The theme that we've been seeing throughout this book of Malachi is God's calling the people of Israel back to himself. Calling to them and saying, you've been practicing this dead and this worthless religion. You've been acting as if it is your works that save you, thinking that you can have one foot in your own kingdom and one foot in my kingdom, as if somehow that will save you and and help you. And the Lord continually calling Israel to the line, saying, this is how you have sinned against me. And the nation of Israel defending themselves, or at least as we'll see this morning, a large chunk of them. And what we have been seeing here, and we'll continue to see this morning, is that while maintaining an unrepentant and proud heart will ultimately lead to our destruction and separation from the Lord... To return and repent will actually allow us to enter into the eternal glory before the Lord. To be able to enter into our salvation with Him. While maintaining, let me say that again. While maintaining an unrepentant and proud heart towards the Lord will ultimately lead to our death, destruction, and separation from Him. To return and to repent to Him will lead to our eternal glory before the Lord. There is a way back. So it is with that in mind, let me read this morning from Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. When I was in college, I went through a period in my first semester. I, I played baseball my entire life growing up. It was the only thing I ever did. Uh, it was from the age of 8 until the age of about 22, 23 years old. It was baseball for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then right before I went to bed too. That was all I ever did. And so I, I had the opportunity to play baseball in college. So I went away and, you know, you don't go play in college unless you were pretty good in high school. So if you're pretty good in high school, you often think that you're the top dog. You're the one, you know, you're the best. That's why you're going on to play at the next level. This is how sports works. So I get to college and it was a huge wake-up call because everyone that's there playing with me is the same, if not better, than myself. Um, often better than me. 
And there was a real intense period of just personal crisis, personal identity of who I was and what, where my identity was placed. Because truthfully speaking, it was my identity was more as an athlete than it was as a follower of Christ. And then specifically, we get into the first semester. Baseball is a spring sport, so we had gone through the first semester. We get to the second semester, games are starting, and all of a sudden, uh, I get this little injury in my left foot, right at the right in the ankle, and it gets infected uh, with this thing called MRSA, which I come to find out actually can be a very deadly thing to have happened. Thankfully, mine was a non-toxic version, so I was okay. But what it did was it basically put me on my back for about a month and a half, right in the middle of the season. I could barely walk. I was on, I was on crutches just sort of getting around different places throughout the day. And that was a very low point in my life. My entire identity was being stripped. Who I thought I was as a human being was completely put into question to the point where I started just questioning every little thing about myself. Who am I as a man? Who am I? Like, how has God designed me to exist? All the sin struggles that I had were, were all of a sudden, it was just full, the, the sun was just beating down on them. And, and I, was, I was like a, a weed in the middle of the desert. I was just scorched. And the Lord was doing a work in my life that moment because I realized in that time that I had been wandering very far from him. While I thought that my identity was in him, if you had asked me at that time, are you a Christian? Are you a believer? Do you trust in Jesus? I would have said yes. But the reality of my life was very different. The reality of my life was that my identity was wrapped up in something completely separate from who God is and what God had asked of me. And I'll never, rem- I'll never forget lying in my dorm room one night. I'm, I'm laying there on the top bunk just staring at the ceiling. And I was just in tears, just weeping. Because everything that I had worked for the last 12, 14 years of my life, you know, when you're a kid, you think you'll go play professionally. You've got all these aspirations. And they're good. Those things are necessary. and Those are not bad things. But all those things I had been working for, the Lord was just cleaning house. And he was calling me back to him. And I remember lying in my bed, coming to a place, it was like a fork in the road, where either I had to make one of two decisions at that point. Either I was going to say, this Jesus thing, this Christianity, this is the real deal. And no matter what I'm going through in my life right now, I'm going to keep walking down that path. Or I'm done with this. Life is not working out how I wanted. I'm out. And I remember being in a very real place where I was... You know, I was lying in my bed, but it felt like I was walking up to that fork in the road. And by God's grace, it was the examples of people that I had grown up with in my own church, in my own surroundings, who I had seen following the Lord, and the ones who had walked away from the Lord as well and seen the destruction in their own lives that ultimately called me back to Him. It was the Lord 
calling me back to him in the same way that the Lord has been calling to Israel, saying, stop walking away from me. Stop going the direction that you think is right. Follow after me with your whole heart. Give up this false religion, this this playing of games that you think is saving you. And all it's doing is leading you farther away from me. And what we see this morning here, it's fascinating. These, These first three chapters... The people of Israel, every time God affirms to them something that he has done or a way that he has called them or something that he has required, every time they defend themselves. I have loved you. How have you loved us? They respond. You have robbed me. How have we robbed you? They respond. And yet through all of this, there are some who have been listening, who have been hearing the voice of God and paying attention to what he said. And that's why we see here in verse 16 this repentance, this turning back to God, this saying we will not walk away from the Lord who has been faithful. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. What does it look like to be one of these who fears the Lord? There's a couple of things that we see here in this book of Malachi that exemplify what it was to be one who feared the Lord and what's going on in their hearts in this moment based upon what the Lord has required of them in order to be called those who feared the Lord. So the first thing we see is a recognition of of position. Malachi 1.6. We have the example of a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord. Now we talked about, we've talked about, and we will continue to talk about this morning, what it looks like to fear the Lord, but there is a recognition of position. As a father to a son, as a master to a servant, there is a recognition of who is over who. Who calls the shots? Who makes the decisions here? We are the created, and he is the creator. So outside of position, though, we also see a recognition of power. A recognition of power. Malachi 1 Verse 14 says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Furthermore, in chapter 2, verse 5, we see, My covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear. This is speaking about the covenant of Levi, which... I'm not going to go back into, but essentially Levi, too much, but Levi was not willing, willing to tolerate the sin in the presence of Israel because he understood and feared the Lord and knew what the Lord does to those who practice sin. So there is a recognition of power, a recognition of position, 
as God as our creator and a recognition of power. That God will bring justice to the wicked. That God will not allow the wicked to go unpunished. This was the cry that Israel was making in last week's sermon. You allow, you allow the wicked to do their thing, to go unpunished. Why? Why do you allow that? But the one who fears the Lord knows the Lord will deal with wickedness. It may not happen the way you deem as to be the appropriate time, but it will not go unpunished. And the third thing we see, and we see this specifically here, is these people seeking after knowledge. Proverbs 1.7 says that fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And so this fear of the Lord is the place from which our knowledge grows and our understanding of how everything in the world works. Recognition of position, recognition of power, and seeking after knowledge are those who fear the Lord as defined here in this passage. And so we see that they they spoke with one another. They had heard the petitions of the Lord. They had heard him as the king calling out to his people through the messenger Malachi. They had heard him saying, why are you living in this way? Why do you rob from me? Why do you profane me? Why do you do you not know that I love you? And there is a decision to listen and follow that which we, he has said. And so we see here now that the Lord pays attention and hears them. The Lord paid attention and heard them. Proverbs 15.29 states, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. When there is repentance, when there is turning back to the Lord, when there is drawing near, the Lord hears you. The Lord pays attention to your cries. And we see furthermore now, this idea of a a book of remembrance being brought up. So he doesn't just hear it, but he makes note of it. What is the book of remembrance, you might ask? Well, what would happen in the times of kings is for those who had done good works, those who had done something to endear themselves towards the king, a king would have a book of remembrance. He would have a book in which that individual's name and what they had done would be recorded so that later on the king could look upon it and say, okay, what had, what had been happening here? Who is it that we need to be paying attention to as having done right? We see this happen actually in the book of Esther that the king is reading the book of remembrance. This was a common thing. Luke Chapter 10, verse 20. I'm just going to read it real quickly here. Luke chapter 10, verse 20 makes mention of names being recorded. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Those who fear the Lord, their names are written in heaven. They will be remembered on the day of judgment. 
It is a means by which the Lord knows who fears him, who does not, who follows him, and who does not. So who is it that is remembered? Well, for one, it's those that fear the Lord. I'm sure you could guess by this point I've said fear the Lord at least 30 times in this sermon, maybe more. But it is those that fear the Lord are those who are remembered. And we see in Malachi 3, verse 2, But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, a fuller's soap. In the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, when the Lord comes, there will be a judging of those who are either in his book of remembrance or those who are not. And at that point, we have to ask ourselves then, we know that it is fear of the Lord, but how does this shift for us as New Testament believers? What is it that allows us to fear the Lord? How do we know that we are in this book? How can we be sure? Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let me read that again. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This essentially encapsulates everything that it means to fear the Lord. To recognize that it is, to be able to say that you recognize that Jesus is Lord is a position of, is recognizing the, power, the position of power. That Christ is over you. To believe that he was raised from the dead is a recognition of power. You or I cannot raise ourselves from the dead. But it is Christ who has raised himself from the dead. And you will be saved. Now, At this point, as well, we need to step back a little bit. Because we also live in a day and age, and and I think that, well, I shouldn't even say a day and age, because this has been going on as long as the church has existed. But there are many who will call upon the name of the Lord, and he will say to them, I never knew you. So how is it that we distinguish here? What is our role and responsibility in this? Obviously, there are those who are wicked that just straight up, do not fear the Lord. They reject Him. They say He doesn't exist. I do not want to follow Him. I want to do what I want to do. That is a clear delineation right there. There are those, they are, the, they are wicked in that sense. However, there are many within what we would call Christianity, or at least they would say they are within Christianity, who are most likely not in this camp of those who fear the Lord. So what is our role and responsibility within all of this? One, we need to be very cautious and very careful. It is easy to stand as if you are in some place of elevation throwing stones. That is not my intention. My intention is for us to, with wisdom, be able to see 
what it actually is to fear Christ and to be able to call upon him as Lord. Because it is very easy for us to morph what we believe Christ is or who we believe Christ is and how we want him to fit into our life. So there are a couple of things that I think are very helpful to us being able to understand and to ascertain whether or not there is true fear for the Lord. Now we need to be, again, we need to be careful. We are not standing, we need to, there is, there is essentially, a de- there should be a desire amongst the local church for the leadership to be guarding the sheep. And they have a responsibility to be caring for the souls of those in the congregation in that way. Within our own families, we have a responsibility to train up our children in the fear and understanding of the Lord and what it actually means to call upon Christ as Lord. But in order to understand how this practically plays out, there are a few things that I think are helpful. One, what is your view towards the authority of Scripture? What is your view towards the authority of Scripture? One of the things that I have often noticed about those who may call themselves Christians but seem to be living very differently to how the scriptures to what the scriptures actually call them to live by is this approach as if the authority of scripture is somewhat negotiable or flexible that if the, the if the scriptures have a certain calling towards a sexual ethic that that is negotiable seems to be one of the approaches of those who don't have a strong understanding of the authority of Scripture. Context certainly matters when interpreting Scripture. But if the, the Scriptures themselves do not have a place of authority, if we are not submitting ourselves to them, it is very easy for us to essentially rewrite what the Scriptures are saying. The second thing is, does one accept who Christ says he is. As you read through the scriptures, is the desire to understand who Christ is and submit yourself to him, or is the desire to create a Christ that fits with what you, how you want him to be, or how you want him to act in your life? Sadly, I think one of, there is... This is just one small example of how this has happened. There's a recent book that I've been sort of making my way through slowly. It's called Jesus and John Wayne. And some of you may have heard of it, I don't know. Now, the, I very much disagree with the author in terms of the conclusions she is reaching about what direction the church ought to go. However, the whole premise of it is that the modern Western conservative evangelical church has often equated Jesus with an understanding of who John Wayne as an actor was and what it means to be a Christ follower often mimics more closely what it means to look like a Western cowboy. Now, I don't believe that's what it means to be a Christ follower is to look like John Wayne. But sadly, in much of our evangelical churches, this is the direction we've gone. 
we've gone this direction as if Jesus is some sort of desperado guy slinging a gun, you know, going and paving his own way. And oftentimes we treat church in the same way. But that's not who Christ presents himself as. Christ in the garden, when Peter is ready to roll and cuts off a guy's ear, tells Peter to put away the sword and puts the guy's ear back on. That is not what John Wayne would have done. (laughs) Do you see what I'm saying? We oftentimes approach the scriptures seeking to change Christ to who we want him to be in order to fit our own cultural narrative rather than looking and saying, who is this Jesus? And how does he act? And we attempt to do this and contextualize him to fit what makes us most comfortable. And I see this happening throughout the American church on both the very conservative side of the church and the very liberal side of the church. I see it happening across. This is not something that just one facet of the church struggles with. We all struggle with this because we don't really want to change. We want to keep living like Israel and Malachi with one foot in the kingdom and one foot in our own kingdom. And the Lord won't have it. What is your view towards the authority of Scripture? Does it rule your life? Does it change how you live? And what is your view towards Christ? Does who he says he is change how you live? Or do you attempt to change who he presents himself as in order to make how you want to live more acceptable? Now, if we are not doing those things, if we are approaching Christ and saying, change me, change me into who you desire me to be. Make me more like you. May I submit myself to you and your will to be more like Christ, to die to myself and to pick up my cross and follow you. That is what it looks like to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If that is you, you will be saved. And there are promises that are attached with this. Philippians 1.6, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it, we're told. 1 Peter 2, 9-10. I'm going to read that briefly because it ties into this idea of being set apart and being this chosen nation to be these people who are uh, set apart for Christ. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. If you're paying attention at the beginning of the service, this is Exodus. It's been still going all these thousands of years. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, God's possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The Lord in his goodness not only has begun the work and we'll see it through to completion, he has taken us as his people and he has set us apart 
as Ephesians 1.5 has said, he has predestined us as sons for adoption. So you see, it's not just now that you're this people who are sort of associated with the king. You've been brought in as sons and daughters of the king. You are royalty. Submit to the king. Seek to live as he has desired for you to live. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. This is verse 17 of Malachi 3. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. If you've ever read the the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis, this is one of my favorite things about the, the books, is the four children, as they're brought into Narnia, They aren't just random individuals, but rather they are sons and daughters of the king. They are royalty. C.S. Lewis did that on purpose. He wants us to understand that when you follow after Christ, you are his son. You are his daughter. And we see in verse 18 now, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So how does this work? Because I've been talking about the grace of Christ, that that Jesus came, that he did the whole work. And if we're not careful, when we read verse 18, it makes it seem like we're the ones who save ourselves That when the Lord looks on the righteous, he's looking for those who serve him or don't serve him. So is it that I can save myself or is it that Christ alone can save me? Which one? Let's go to Hebrews. Go with me in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 9, please. So near the back, Hebrews chapter 9. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, and James. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. Oh, this is such a good passage. If you've been ignoring me this whole time, just tune in for the next five minutes, please. (laughs) But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, thus by means of his own blood. So what's happening here? The old sacrificial system. You sin, you go to the temple, there's a high priest who takes your animal offering, slaughters it, And your sins have been atoned for. They have been dealt with. You are no longer responsible for those sins. Thus securing by the blood of Christ an eternal redemption. Every time you sinned, you had to go to the temple. And your sin had to be dealt with by the sacrifice of an animal. Every time. 
And this is what Malachi, in chapters 2 and 3, is getting into when he's talking about the fact that God had required that the best animals, the perfect ones, the unblemished ones, because your sin makes you blemished. The unblemished animal is the only one that can pay for your sin. And you had to go every time and deal with your sin. And we're told here now that Christ, he appears as the high priest. He is the one who can do the sacrificing on your behalf and is also sacrificed on your behalf, this power of Christ. And then it doesn't just happen so that you have to keep sacrificing Christ every time. But there is this eternal redemption that his blood is spilled once for all time. 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, that's a cow, in case you didn't know, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, so those acted as sanctification for the flesh, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? So our spirit is eternally purified by the blood of Christ. And he now purifies our conscience from dead works. What happened every time you did good works? Under the old covenant, your works, according to the book of Romans, serve as a means of condemning you. Because it reveals that the law of God is written upon your heart. That any time you did something good, it's because you knew that there was a difference between what is right and wrong. But your works cannot save you Because your sin condemns you. But now we have been purified. Our conscience has been purified from dead works in order to serve the living God. If you've missed it, let me me go back a little bit. When you do good works now, as a believer... When you do good works, this is a means by which you serve the living God. So that when God looks upon you, and he's looking upon who are the righteous, who are the wicked. When he sees you, it's the blood of Christ which has covered your good works. So that you can be saved. So that you can be viewed as righteous before the Lord. If you do your good works apart from confessing the name of Jesus, apart from the blood of Christ, all your good deeds only serve to condemn you. Because they are not paid for. They are not submitted to the blood and covered by the blood of Christ. So it is not your good works that save you, but rather your good works are now covered by the blood of Christ as a believer So that now when the Lord looks upon you, he sees you as righteous. Ultimately, 
those who do not call upon the name of Jesus, those who do not submit themselves to his authority, will be cut off and separated. You know, the, I alluded earlier to the Chronicles of Narnia. My favorite book in that series, number seven, is The Last Battle. And you get to the, the end of the last battle, and all of Narnia comes to be judged. And those who are righteous enter in to just the most beautiful and vivid and incredible world. And those who have rejected the Lord are separated and cast off from him forever. It is pain. It is sorrow. It is just heartache for eternity. Who will you be? Will you be the one who seeks to change what the scriptures say to fit what makes you most comfortable? Will you be the one who seeks to make Jesus the version that you want him to be so that you can feel happiest about the way that you're living now? Will you seek to excuse yourself in the same way that Israel has done in these first three chapters of Malachi? Or will you be like these people who when they hear the call of the Lord to turn and repent... They come back to him. Will you repent and turn to the Lord? And will you submit yourself to him and draw near? That is ultimately the call we have today. To return to the Lord is to be part of his treasured possession. To be his people set apart. To be able to enter into his presence one day. And it will be a glorious glorious place. It will be a glorious day. But do not be deceived to think that you can save yourself. Do not be deceived to think that your good works will somehow save you. Rather, it is by faith and trust in the blood of Christ that now we can go and do good works to seek to bless and to love others. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we come to you this morning, Lord, knowing knowing, Lord God, that, that we have often wandered so far from you. And you call us back as your treasured possession. You call us back as your children, saying, Do not run from me. I am your king. You are my people. You are my sons and daughters. Lord God, with graciousness we ask that you would hear our cries this morning, our desire to return to you. Lord God, help us in our unbelief. Save us, Lord God, from ourselves. Lord, we lift all of this up to you. In the name of Jesus, amen.
Let us stand as we sing the closing hymn together.